Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. We'll read to verse 14. This is the words of the Apostle Paul as inspired by the Holy Spirit. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter to, to the Colossians. We thank you for this time to study it. And Lord, I pray that you would take these words and transform our lives by them. Lord, help us not to leave here changed. Help us not to leave here not changed. But change us, God, by your word. By giving us knowledge of your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many of you have ever purchased a board game before? Or a card game, right? You have before? I, uh, I make it sort of a habit to buy Caden a game on his birthday, every birthday. And uh, this last birthday that he had, I bought him this game called Loot. It's a pirate game. And uh, we enjoy playing that. Loot. Loot. Right, Caden? R. <laughs> when you buy a board game or a card game, what comes with those things often? Instructions, right? So what happens if you buy a game and you're so excited to play it and you start, you sit down, you set it up, and you don't even read the instructions? What do you think would happen? You'll argue. Well, you right. Are you going to have any fun? No, probably not. Maybe, maybe if you like kind of chaotic game playing, right? But if you don't read the game, then you can't really play. If you don't read the instructions, you can't really play the game, right? Or sometimes people only read part of the instructions, and they end up arguing later during the game, right, about how the game is played, right? And you read the instructions to play the game. You don't buy a board game and then just read the instructions and don't play it, right? You read the instructions so that you can play the game, right? And it's... It's this sort of thing that Paul's talking about here when he prays that we would have the knowledge of God's will. Because when a person becomes a Christian, they don't necessarily know how to live as a Christian, right? I mean, did you automatically know how to live as a Christian the moment you became a Christian? No. Because becoming a Christian isn't about how you live, is it? Becoming a Christian isn't about how you walk with the Lord. It's about believing in what Christ has done for you on the cross, isn't it? You don't have to do anything to become a Christian except trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. But that doesn't tell you about how to live as a Christian, right? But God's given Christians instructions on how to live as Christians too. And what happens if we don't ever read those instructions? 
And we're going to be arguing about how to live as a Christian, right? We're not going to know how to play the game, so to speak. We're not going to know how to live as a Christian. Or some people only read part of the instructions. I know if we only pick and choose in the scripture as we read about Christianity and how to live as a Christian, we're not going to have a full picture and a robust picture of what it is to live as a Christian, right? But one other thing, too, is that we don't read the Bible, and we don't learn about God, and we aren't filled with the knowledge of God so that we don't live as a Christian, right? Just like you don't read instructions for the sake of just reading instructions, so here Paul says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, fruitful in every good work. So knowledge of God should lead to action, not inaction. That's God's desire. As we learn about God, as we come together, as we read the Bible, as we hear sermons, as we go to Bible study, and we do all these things, and we're filling ourselves with the knowledge of the will of God, we don't just get filled for the sake of knowledge, right? Otherwise, then, it's just a big intellectual nothing. But we're filled with knowledge to have action, not just inaction, to have a life to live. That's what Paul prays for here in this place. Paul prays that they would have, verse 9, that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will. Now that word filled means filled to the full. That they would be full of the knowledge of God's will. But notice that in order to be filled with God's, the knowledge of God's will, and the knowledge of God's will in this sense isn't salvation, because these people are saved. The Colossians were Christians. So he wasn't saying, I want you to know how to get saved. And it's not just the knowledge of his, of his will for your personal life, like where you should live and where you should go to work and wh- what you should do at school. Not those um, very personal, practical things. But the knowledge of his will as how he desires you to live as a Christian in a dark world. How he desires to you to live as a light in this dark world. And notice that to know that, it says, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the place that you come to know that is a place of all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It takes wisdom and understanding, spiritual understanding, to know God's will. God has given his instructions, but sometimes we don't understand them. And Satan has given his instructions as well. So Satan comes along and he says, yeah, this is, this is the instruction book on how to live a Christian life. And this is actually the problem in Colossians, is you have these so-called Christians coming to the church and saying, it's great that you guys are believers in Messiah, Jesus Christ, it's great. Now here's what you have to do in order to live a rich and robust Christian life. And so it takes wisdom to discern God's will. It's not something that we automatically know. And we need to know this. Because Satan comes along with his wisdom. And he says, yeah, you're a Christian now, that's great, that's great. But... To really play this game well, you need to subject yourself to all these rules that I have to give you. You need to um, you know, come under my laws and regulations. Then you'll have a full Christian life. That's the way. Or he's saying, well, your faith is insufficient. So it sounds good, right, on the outside. It sounds good sometimes. You think, yeah, this can really help me. This sounds wise. As he says in chapter 2, there's a, an appearance of wisdom in these in these satanic instructions that he would give us. So it takes wisdom, the wisdom of God, to understand his will. Because God's will 
for our lives is incredibly different than the wisdom of this world. What God has to say about life is totally different than what you'll hear at school if you go to a, like a religious studies program or something like that. You know, I meet lots of students up on campus who are in the religious studies program, and I ask them about it. I say, what are they teaching you? And everything that they tell me, I'm like, oh, no, that is not good. It sounds so wise. It sounds so tolerable. It sounds so kind. And really, it's, it's against God's instructions for life. So it takes wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, look at verse 10 through 12. And we see here a picture of a rich quality of a Christian life. I want to just point out some of these all words that you might have picked up as I read it. So in verse 9, we're filled with all wisdom and we know his will. We're filled to the full of God's of the knowledge of his will. And look what it leads to. It leads to walking worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, not some, but every good work, strengthened with all might, not some, unto his glorious power, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joy, with joy. Isn't that amazing? So this is a rich Christian life that God has intended for us. And I think that most of us live far below what God desires for us to live as. This isn't talking about salvation. This isn't talking about that at all. But it's talking about how we live our life. And as I've been reading this and as I read the Bible, and I, I, um, you know, I find that, that the, the picture of the Christian life in the Scripture is so far above what even I'm experiencing, and so far above what I would expect to experience in my life. Like something's, there's a disconnect in what I read. I'm like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. All patience, every good work, all might, all pleasing, all wisdom. And it's like, this is God's intention. Can that happen in my life? I ask myself this. I think that one of the reasons why we don't experiences this because we don't really believe it even can happen in our lives. Because I think for most of us as Christians, we've seen this and we say, okay, this is what God wants me to do and God wants me to be as a Christian. And we don't know how to do that. And so we set out to do it, right, in our own way. We're like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know how I'm supposed to do it. So I'll just go for it. It's like putting a board game on the table and say, okay, here's start and here's finish. I don't know. I know that I have to be there, so I'm just going to go for it. You don't even read how you get there, right? But I think that's true for most Christians. We know what a godly Christian life is supposed to look like. Total patience, right? As one example. Total patience. But yet, because we seek to arrive there, not in God's way, and we seek to arrive there by Satan's wisdom or the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of laws and rules in our own strength, then we fail and then we even give up hope that we can do it. And we just say, oh, these are just nice ideas and ideals. But no one can actually do it. And then, of course, if we don't believe we can do it, we won't do it. But I want to challenge us on this this morning. I want to challenge you that this is God's intention for us as Christians. And there is a way to arrive at this place. But it's not the way we've been trying, is it? And it's the way of 
the gospel? And do we believe that everything we need for life and godliness, we, remember we're talking about the sufficiency of Christ in Colossians, do we believe that every single thing we need to arrive at a place where we live in all pleasing unto the Lord, all patience unto the Lord, is in Christ. You don't need to go other places to find that. And it's all there in Christ. Everything that we need for this is found in him. So Paul doesn't go into it much here. He's going to it later in the letter. But he wants us to understand the knowledge of God's will, the way of sanctification, you could say, so that we would walk in this rich and wonderful Christian life, this wonderful quality. And in verse 10, this is the suitable walk. You know what's a suitable walk for one who's saved by grace? All patience. How is that suitable for one who's been saved by grace? How is that consistent? How does that make sense to have all patience? Think about that for a minute. Just using all patience as an example. Doesn't it make sense that if God showed us patience, even though we deserved no patience, even though we deserve what we should have got, was punishment from God for our sins, an immediate punishment, by the way. What we should have got, we didn't get. And God showed great patience and mercy and kindness and long-suffering towards us by laying his son's life down for us and saving us, even though we don't deserve that. And our sins against God are so much worse than any man's sin against me. So if Casey was to sin against Sean, that sin against Sean is not even comparable to Casey's own sin against God and Sean's own sin against God, right? And so all Sean would have to do is say, wow, God had mercy on me and my sin. Therefore, it would only be suitable for me to have mercy and not get upset with Casey, but to be patient and forgiving towards him. See, this is the suitable walk. That, verse, that word worthy in verse 10 doesn't mean worthy Necessarily, it means suitable or appropriate. There's no sense of being worthy um, in verse 10, like in the, in the way many people think of that word. So God wants us to walk suitably, but it requires knowledge. It's like Paul would often talk about religious people. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not enough to have a zeal for God. I meet a lot of people who are zealous for God, and I... I'm concerned because they're zealous for God and they don't have knowledge and they're just plowing ahead in their own strength, preaching their own things. And it's not enough for us to just be like, wow, that's a great guy. That guy is just so zealous for God. He must totally have all the answers. So don't be deceived by those who are zealous, right, Nick? Don't be deceived just by those who seem to be zealous for God. But look for those who have the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And notice, we've already seen in Colossians that the gospel and the hope that comes from the gospel brings fruit, doesn't it? Remember in verse 5? Uh, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have heard before in the word of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and brings forth fruit as it does also in you. That's the fruit of love. It brought that forth in the world. And now in verse 10, Paul says that you be fruitful in every good work. So in everything, we'd experience fruit. Not just in one area of life, but in all areas of life, we would experience fruitful growth 
on account of the knowledge of God's will, on account of the knowledge of God. So in verse 10, it should read something like this, being fruitful and increasing in every good work. And then in the King James Bible, it says in the knowledge of God, but in the Greek, it would say by the knowledge of God. It's by the knowledge of God that we are fruitful and increase our fruit. By the knowledge of God. So how do you get fruit in your life if you don't see it? According to verse 10, Colossians 1.10, you say, man, I just have such a lack of good fruit in my life, such a lack of good, of love and of patience. Man, I really just want to be fruitful in every good work and increase in these things. What is the prescription? The prescription is the knowledge of God. I think back to Ephesians chapter 3, that you might know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The knowledge of God is the prescription, not more rules, not someone coming along and motivating you with a stick, but the knowledge of God. Knowing God. And what does Jesus say it was to know God? To know him is eternal life. To know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. To know God as he is in truth. Not just to know there is a God and just think about, okay, there is a God. I need to stop sinning and keep his commandments and bear fruit here. But knowing who he is, that God is a God who sent his son to die on the cross for us. God of love, mercy, and compassion. So the knowledge of God produces every good fruit. Now look at verse 11 with me. It says, Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. Now, I'll stop right in mid-sentence. Now, what do you think we need to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for? You'd think that such a description as that, like that Nathaniel would be strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power to do this great, amazing spiritual feat. Like, what is he being strengthened to do? You'd think it's going to be this huge thing. Well, it is this huge thing, but maybe not what we expect. It says here, patience. Do you realize you need to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power to have patience? Although when you read that, it's like to move mountains or something, you know? That is kind of moving the mountain, isn't it? <laughs> strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Isn't that amazing? So here's something we learn, that patience and long-suffering isn't something that we're going to have without God's power, okay? Who can attest to that? (laughs) It doesn't come from willpower, okay? Now, certainly with willpower, you can shut your mouth, but that's not patience and long-suffering. It's not just not striking back even if you want to. It's a whole disposition of patience towards those who wrong you. Because it says here with joyfulness. Now, if you just clench your teeth, that's not joyfulness, is it? That's like someone smacking you in the face and you're just just glad that God loves them, you know? (laughs) Patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. That's not a human thing. That's a God thing. That's something God did. If God is calling us to this, don't you think that God himself is this way towards us? Now think about that. When you sin, how many of you feel that God is patient with you, but he's clenching his teeth a bit? 
know? Oh, I'm such a sinner. And God is so patient with me. Man, but I'm testing his patience. He's so ticked off with me. He's just clenching his teeth. And he sent Jesus to the cross begrudgingly for me. God, will you forgive my sins? He says, fine. Yes, I will. Do you ever feel that way, even if you don't say it? How come God would tell us to do something that he doesn't do? Could it be that God is patient towards us with joy? Now, wouldn't that change a few things if we thought that way? <laughs> if we didn't just think God was patient with us, and yeah, he's patient with me, I should be patient with him. But God actually takes pleasure. God is joyful in showing patience. Isn't that amazing? God is joyful. It's something that brings him joy. What brings you joy? You know, good food, good friends, good activities. Those things bring you joy. What if patience brought us joy? <laughs> like, I really enjoy just showing mercy to people. You know, it's really a wonderful thing to do. Do you think that's possible? I mean, we should see the impossibility of it on, in one sense, right? It is such a divine thing. But this is what makes Christianity so wonderful. It's not just a bunch of rules. God gives to people, says, hey, you got the free agency. You can just go and do it. Like, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, is sinners experiencing the impossible, which is justification, right? It's totally impossible for you to go to heaven. Did you know that? In your own ability, in your own righteousness. Like, for God to save you, it's an impossibility without Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And Christianity is all about the impossible. Jesus even said, when the disciples asked him, who can be saved then? He says, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. All things are possible with God. So the very fact that you're going to heaven is a, is a miracle. And then the whole Christian life is not just about how, showing off how great you are. It's a miracle. With man, I'll say, this is impossible. Let that sink down into your heart, that this is impossible with man. You cannot be patient with joy. But with God, all things are possible. And what God wants for your life and for my life, and I'm challenged by this, he wants me, he wants you to walk suitably unto all-pleasing fruitful in every good work, strengthened with all might unto all patience with joy. Wow. So we need to read those instructions, don't we? Now the word here for power, we've seen before in Ephesians. Can you guess what it is? Is it just God's muscle? You need some omnipotence. Well, it's not dunamis in the Greek. Dunamis is just sort of, you know, the brute dynamite strength. But the, the word here in 11, when it says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, glory being doxa and power being this word credo, which we've seen before. And it actually has to do with his legislative power. It has to do with his authority his ability as the king, his dominion. Actually, the word credo is translated dominion throughout our New Testament. So in 1 Peter 5.11, in 
in Jude one twenty five, both of those are doxologies, and both of them say, to him be dominion forever and ever. And the word is credo. It's not just, you know, may God be big and strong and muscular forever, but it's may he, may he rule forever, forever and ever and ever. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords, his reign, his dominion, his authority as God. This is what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, when he said that, when he prayed that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power that works towards us, to us who believe. So when you believe on Jesus Christ, you have access to this amazing power. Okay? Think about that for a moment. As a believer in Jesus, if you're not a believer in Jesus, there's no access to that. You're actually not under his power. You're under the power of darkness, as we'll see in just a few verses. But as a Christian who is saved and redeemed, you have access to a power, a veto power, a power of the King of Kings. And this is what he's saying that you'd be strengthened by. Strengthened to have patience with all joy according to this power of his glory. And um, it's the strength to endure that comes when we see Jesus as exalted and as the Lord. So let's think about this. When do we need patience? When do we need endurance? When do we need long-suffering? In many realms, right? First of all, you need patience and faith. This is an expression in the New Testament. Patience in faith, meaning you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the whole world is telling you, no, no, that's not going to help. You need to, here's something you need, else you need to believe. You need to believe this too, or no, get rid of Jesus. You're not going to be saved by grace through faith. And patience and faith is saying, no, I'm not casting away my confidence in Jesus Christ because of all these other ideas. I'm going to be patient in faith. Patient in him. Because you see into the heavenlies and you see there is only one way that I can be delivered, and it's through, the, it's through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Knowing that Christ alone brings righteousness. Christ alone brings righteousness, so therefore, it doesn't matter what you say, I will have patience and faith. You need patience in tribulation. So when someone beats you up, when someone says, I'm going to ridicule you and beat you up because you're a Christian, I'm going to burn your Bible and all these things, and you have the temptation, Satan's saying, just give up. This is too hard. Can you have patience with joy when you're being persecuted as, as a Christian? You need strength for that. And the strength for that comes by seeing into the heavenlies and seeing that in Christ alone there's hope. So even if I were to say, okay, I'll just quit this whole Christian thing so I can have hope in my life, so I can just live a peaceful life, so I can just be okay. And in the book of Hebrews, he's continually urging the Christians, don't give up hope in Christ. Don't walk away just because they're spoiling your goods. Because look, he says, look to the reward that's to come. Only in Christ there's hope. And then again, as we've spoken, patience in relationships as well. You need patience with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Only by seeing in Christ alone there's peace. In him alone. You don't look anywhere else to have patience in relationships, but to Jesus. As we looked at in Ephesians chapter 2, if you remember, what do you do to have peace between man and man? You look to Jesus Christ, who is our peace, who shed his blood. 
Both of us are reconciled to God by the blood of his son. None of us relate to God by law, and therefore none of us relate to each other by law. It's only by righteous grace that we have peace with God and peace with man. In verse 12, Paul now says, not only is living a consistent life about bearing good fruit in every walk of life, and not only is it about being strengthened by God's power to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, but here is another aspect of a suitable life, brothers and sisters, and that is thankfulness. Thankfulness to God is suitable as Christians. So we sang that song, right? Um, Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son. The word is grateful. Are we, as Christians, grateful for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? Do you feel that you're grateful for what God has done for you in Christ Jesus? How do you think you would get grateful? If you're not, by writing on a chalkboard, I will be grateful to the Father. I will be grateful to the Father. You write that out a hundred times, young man. <laughs> can, you, can you think how you would be grateful to God? Could it be just by being filled with, this, with the knowledge of God and by meditating on who you are without Christ and who you are with Christ and why you had that big change. Just as simple as that. Paul emphasizes over and over in his letters thankfulness to God. In fact, Paul sums up the whole Christian life as a life of thankfulness. In, in Colossians chapter 2, as we'll see in the future, in verse 6 and 7 he says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. That should characterize our lives as Christians. I think if we were abounding in thanksgiving, we would also find ourselves abounding in other fruits as well. Right? But I think we're like, oh, I need these other fruits and we kind of leave thankfulness behind. I don't think you can do that. If we abound in thanksgiving, I find personally when I am really down and when I'm not seeing God's grace for me and when I'm noticing my life and that I'm irritable and I'm not um, you know I don't seem to be bearing fruit I usually just start thanking God for what he's done for me on the cross and my whole perspective changes and I start to see not only myself in the light of the love of God but I start seeing others in the light of the love of God as well just by giving thanks just by even if I don't feel it in my heart just God thank you for what your word says that you love me and you gave yourself for me, even though I'm a jerk today. You just thank you so much. And then my heart begins to soften just by meditating on what God has done. So giving thanks to God. And we have so much to give thanks to God for, don't we? And this isn't, in this context, not just saying giving thanks for all things like food and drink, and those things we should give thanks to God for, as the Bible instructs us. But this is more specific. I think if only we thank God for our temporal blessings, we won't experience this, this um, suitable walk. We won't experience our hearts being filled. If all we do is just thank God for our food. But it says here, giving thanks to God for what? 
who has made us meet or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. Isn't that amazing? That's more than just your food, okay? It's not just thanks God for this dinner. That's thanks God for an inheritance with the saints in light. Wow. That means I've got a glorious future. When God lays up an inheritance for you, he lays up an inheritance for you. And he lays it up for you because he loves you. And you could never have gotten this unless he qualified you to get it. This wasn't something he gave you because you're such a great guy. This is something he gave you because he loves you. An inheritance. Brothers and sisters, our, if, if you're a Christian, the best is yet to come. Corey Ten Boom used to always say that with twinkling eyes. She'd say, the best is yet to come. You know, the best is yet to come. This is not the best. The best is yet to come. We have a glorious inheritance. We just meditate on that. And how we got it, he made us meet. He made us qualified. You did not qualify yourself for this. If anything, you disqualified yourself for it. The Father has made you qualified to be a saint, to be holy and set apart with the saints in light. The saint is one who's set apart. Can you imagine for a moment? Imagine now you die as a Christian and you get resurrected at the very end when Jesus comes back. Just imagine with me. When you realize at that point all these things and suddenly, you know, Sunday night football doesn't seem very important anymore, right? You just imagine this. And you see yourself with this group of saints, the saints in light. Now you're in a group, and you realize something. You realize that your group that you're with, the saints, is far smaller than the group that is not saints. Can you imagine for a moment? You're like, wow, there's like, I mean, there's a lot of us, but comparatively, we're a very small number compared to the vast majority that isn't here. And you think, shouldn't I be in that other group? Like, why am I in this little majority? Have you ever thought about it? Like, why am I here? I certainly deserve to be there. How come I'm set apart? How come I'm a saint? How come I'm holy unto God? How come I'm his, God's, part of God's people? And, and all these people aren't, and yet I should be there. And don't you think that will fill you with thankfulness when you realize that? It's like, goodness, why me? That's what David said, right? Who am I? Why am I here? I should be there. And I'm here forever enjoying a glorious inheritance with the saints in light. So this is an amazingly profound thing. That God has made you, if you are believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in him, you are part of a very small but special group that has a glorious inheritance. Verse 13 and 14, here's another reason why we can give thanks to God. He has delivered us from the power or the authority of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. There's a transfer of legislation, meaning I'm no longer under the authority of the law, I'm no longer under the dominion of sin. I'm no longer under the authority of the devil. I'm under the authority of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I'm under the, that authority. I'm in his reign, 
the reign of God's beloved son. And by the way, the reign of God's beloved son or the kingdom of God's beloved son is a beloved kingdom. If God loves his son, he loves everyone who's in his kingdom as much as he loves his son. You're loved just as much. So when God looks upon you, he says, my dear son or my dear daughter. Not just number 39, X. My father grew up in an orphanage and they just had numbers. When God adopts us, he doesn't just put us in an orphanage with a number. He says, my dear son and my dear daughter. In verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This whole picture speaks to us of when Israel was in Egypt. I've been reading that lately. And the Israelites were under the authority of Pharaoh, weren't they? Pharaoh basically was their leader. He was their king. And he was ruling over them, and they were his slaves. And whatever he said went. So if he said, you need to make, you need to make uh, this city, they would make it. And if he said, you need to do it without us providing you straw, they'd have to do it without them providing straw. They were under his authority and power. And God comes along and delivers them from the power of Pharaoh into his own mighty power by basically wasting Egypt with all his mighty wonders. Right? And did you know that God, when he brought out and redeemed his people out of Egypt, he killed a lot of people to do that? Did you know that? Ever thought about that? When God made Israel his own, he did it by killing a lot of people. It was a very, very costly thing that God did. He killed firstborns in Egypt just to make a people for himself. That's a special thing, isn't it? he would shed blood like that but more so when he redeemed us from the power of the law and from the power of Satan and from sin he killed somebody and not just anybody but blood the blood of the son of God his firstborn was, was spilled there so that we could become his special people isn't that amazing that God killed his son so you could be his people and he could redeem you that's what it says here. We have redemption through blood. He killed Jesus so that we could be his people and free and beloved. Isn't that amazing? So I was just thinking about it when I was reading in Exodus. It's like, man, that's a special thing that God did, killing all those people so he could have his own people. They must have felt so privileged. Or I was thinking of myself as an, as an Israelite on that night when they killed the Passover lamb and they put it on the doorpost and then there's a huge cry that went up from Egypt and everyone is crying because they lost their son. Imagine that night you leave because that, that very night they left when all of Egypt is crying. Can you imagine? Walking through those streets that dark night and everyone's just crying and crying and crying and God did that so you could come out. And don't you think you'd be, wow, God, this is amazing. Who am I? What are you doing? Like, this is a special thing. But more so when God sacrificed his son for us and shed his firstborn so that we could be free and come out of that darkness. And what that means for us is that we have the forgiveness of all our sins. 
So we have the forgiveness of all of our sins, always spoken of as something we have, never spoken of as something that we need to get, which sets Christianity apart from all other religions. And so you have the forgiveness of your sins as a Christian because Jesus died for you and not because of your works. And for that, we can give thanks to God, right? We ought to be grateful for what he's done. And one more comment I'll make before I close about the redemption. I was talking about this with some students on campus and with Bethany on campus and Brad, that when God redeemed us by his blood, he didn't just strong-arm the devil, right? Think of a hostage situation and imagine you're a hostage and some evil people have taken you hostage and they're demanding a price. Now there's two things that can be done for you to get free. One, your redeemer can pay them the price and let you get free or the redeemer can come in with a bunch of guns and kill you, kill all your captors and take you, let you get free, right? You can just sweep down and slaughter your captors and then you're free. But this is not what Jesus did when he redeemed us. Jesus didn't just squash Satan. He didn't just say, Satan's demanding your death, but uh, I'll just squash Satan and let you go free. He couldn't do that because Satan's demands were righteous. Satan was saying, he is mine. He is a guilty sinner. He is condemned to death. He does deserve eternal punishment. That's what he deserved, and he's mine. And your law says this, God. And so Satan had a righteous claim. God doesn't just um, overlook his own righteousness and his own law. So we're redeemed by blood. We're not just redeemed by God just coming down and pinging Satan away. But God knowing full well his own righteousness and that we, we in fact, each one of us, do in, in fact deserve death. He sent his son, died for us and shed his blood so we could go free. Paid that ransom price so that we could go free. So it was a costly thing. So if let's give thanks. We're going to be spending the rest of our lives, we're going to be spending all eternity giving thanks unto God. I want to just read Revelation 7, verse 9 to 12. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders, and the four beasts fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Thanksgiving be unto our God in the context of salvation. Because you stand there in white robes, saved 
and redeemed, not because of your own works, but because of his glorious grace. And thanksgiving will go up forever and ever. So we ought to start now. And as we start to thank God now and abound in thanksgiving, we will also abound in every other fruit. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for redeeming us. We are grateful for the cost of your son's blood that we could be redeemed and forgiven of all our sins and given an inheritance like no other. And we thank you, God. We thank you for this rich Christian life that you have for us. Not by our own works of righteousness that we've done, but by your mercy you've saved us. And God, we want to walk suitably before you. And Lord, we confess our great failure to do that. And I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will. In Jesus' name, Lord, help us to be instructed on how to live this life. Help us to believe we can do the impossible through you who gives us strength. Lord, make us all pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.